my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your alien-free host, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes Nightmare Rock, Unexplainable Death, and Space Danger. While we're on this creepy bridge at night, let's talk about horror movies instead of blowing into this gross old bottle while thinking about the empty man. Yar, it be your favorite seafaring warning given pirate. Oh, spoiler beard. Josh is going to talk about a lot of recent movies this episode since he caught up on the Fangoria Chainsaw Award nominees. Prepare for boatloads of spoilers ahead. Only the first movie is something old. Yar. Number one, Vicious Lips, 1986, directed by Albert Puen. A rock band named the Vicious Lips needs a new singer after their singer, Ace Lucas, quit and instantly died in a crash after. Maddie, the band's manager, finds a girl named Judy Jetson at a talent show and hires her. Judy is renamed Ace Lucas. The band sounds great, and Maddie is called by an industry head named Maxine who invites them to play at Radioactive Dream, a huge showcase. Another band couldn't make it, so she killed that band's manager. The band steals the spaceship and blasts off for the gig. While piloting, Maddie gets distracted and has to crash land the ship on a desert planet. Weird stuff happens, but then Judy wakes up. It turns out most of the events in the movie were a dream? The Vicious Lips play at Radioactive Dream. Maxine and a crash are the killers. That's my understanding of what happens. Who knows though? Vicious Lips is a mess. It's unfortunate because the beginning of the movie is neon-soaked 80s future fun. Even when it's fun, it's erratic though. Scenes do not flow together smoothly. It feels like certain shots are missing. Establishing shots, who needs them? What Vicious Lips has going for it is the aesthetic and music. Both of these positive aspects of the movie disappear for 60% of it. It's easy to pinpoint where Vicious Lips transforms from a fun but bad movie to boring garbage. The spaceship crash. Once the spaceship comes to a full stop in the sand on the desert planet, the fun stops with it. The color neon grunge aesthetic is replaced with the inside of a bland ship. Outside of the ship is nothing but sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. What do the characters do in the ship? They yell at each other. Get depressed. Deal with the space serial killer. Huh, rewind. A space serial killer? That has to be interesting. It's not. There's at least 20 minutes of the killer doing nothing on the ship. It's brutal. No one is killed. Nothing happens. Ace Judy leaves the ship eventually and is chased by the killer and planet inhabitants, but even that is dull. It doesn't help that none of that sequence makes sense. It's a dream. Who cares? 
How's the acting? Given that calling this a B-movie is probably giving it too much credit, not great. The band is fine. Maddie, the manager, he's played as an over-the-top douche with a New Jersey accent. It's fun for the first minute, but quickly becomes irritating. Anthony Kent's played Maddie, and that's the only role he has listed on IMDb. Maybe someone will give him a call if a Sopranos parody movie is in the works. Sue Sad and The Next did the music for the band. One of the songs, Save Me, is great in Vicious Lips. It's on Spotify, but the Spotify version is a chopped up and smashed together version of the original that's a complete mess. I assume a clean recording no longer exists, so bits and pieces from the movies had to be edited together. It's a shame that Vicious Lips has to crash and burn 20 minutes into the movie. The sequences in Maxine's lair and the bar where the band first performs are cheesy, entertaining 80s sci-fi. If the crash debacle was shortened and another gig was thrown into the mix, Vicious Lips could easily receive a recommendation. As it is, 60% of the movie is a mind-numbing mess. Albert Pewin directed another movie called Radioactive Dream before Vicious Lips. I haven't watched the former, but wouldn't be surprised if footage and sets from that movie were used to hastily throw together Vicious Lips as a quick cash grab. Even though an 80s sci-fi movie about a rocking all-girl band sounds amazing, don't waste your time with Vicious Lips. More singing, less desert. Number 2, The Empty Man, 2020, directed by David Pryor. Not that one. A guy named Paul falls into a crevice in Bhutan. His friends get him out of the crevice where he was worshipping a strange skeletal statue. Paul is possessed by something. He influences one of the friends to kill the others and herself. Years later, Paul is worshipped by a cult. He is the vessel for an entity called the Empty Man. Paul is dying, so the cult creates a new vessel named James through shared thought. James eventually realizes he's a tulpa, a mind-made body. He's possessed by the Empty Man and kills Paul. The cult now worships James. The Empty Man's influence is the killer. That's a really misleading summary, but it's technically what happens in The Empty Man. Most of the meat of the movie is James looking for a girl named Amanda who has disappeared. He learns that Amanda and her teenage friends did a ritual to summon the Empty Man. It's a Bloody Mary type thing. Unfortunately for the teens, the Empty Man appears to be real and all of them end up dead except Amanda, who James tracks to a cult that worships the Empty Man. James tries to get to the bottom of everything only to find out he's not real. All of his memories were created by the cult. The Empty Man, which I'll shorthand to empty, is a little over two hours. Two hours for a weird horror movie? That's a bit much, isn't it? Empty is a bit longer than it probably needs to be, but the length isn't felt during the viewing. Up until the big twist that James was created by the cult's thoughts and isn't a naturally born person, Empty is riveting. The movie starts with a group of friends hiking in Bhutan. The Bhutan section is eerie and fascinating. Paul ends up possessing and influencing one of his friends named Ruthie to kill the others and then herself. There's this bone flute that Paul took from the crevice. Since I recently watched Leprechaun in the Hood, I thought Leppy was going to pop up asking for his flute back, but unlike the flute in that movie that made people enamored by the blower, or player if you will, playing the bone flute allows the empty man to influence you. Well, it's probably a mixture of playing the bone flute and having Paul sensually scat in your ear. You see him whispering into Ruthie's ear all creepily while she sleeps, 
which kind of looked and sounded like he was singing scat, you know. Oh, oh wait, gross. You thought I meant, jeez. Moving on. The kills in the Bhutan section are intense and disturbing. Ruthie stabs one friend in the back over and over before swiftly slitting another's throat. Ruthie then walks backwards off a cliff. Now that's an opening section. What is Empty going to have in store after this friend massacre? There's a big time skip, 1995 to 2018. In the present movie time, there's this urban legend that if you find an empty bottle on a bridge at night and blow into it while thinking of the empty man, you'll get to meet him three days later. On the first night, you'll hear him. On the second night, you'll see him. And on the third night, he gets you. There must have been a board meeting of monsters where Sadako, aka Samara, aka the ring girl, laid out her seven day plan. And from the back of the room, a cocky, empty man was like, I can do it in three. Three days? Come on. That's way too fast. You'll be overwhelmed if your ritual catches on. Empty. Think about it. It's not even linked to a single VHS tape. There could be, and probably are, a bunch of empty bottles on bridges. We're not going to bail you out. This three-day timeline is asinine. Anyway, Amanda is on a spooky bridge at night with her friends. She finds a bottle and decides, what the heck, let's all do the ritual together. Shortly after, all but one of the kids named Devara go missing. The police are useless, so James gets to the bottom of things and finds all the missing kids, except Amanda, hanging out in the bottom part of the bridge. Literally, they're all dead from being hanged. Oh boy, this is creepy. This is unsettling. First the Bhutan stuff, and now this? After these bodies are found, Devara is located by the Empty Man, who viciously stabs her over and over in the face with a pair of scissors. Only it turns out, she was doing it herself. Friend massacre, hanging buddies, scissor stab face. All of this is unnerving and dreadful. How can Empty possibly up the ante at this point? It can't. Instead of more skin-crawling sequences, a cult is introduced. Okay, so what? A cult can be intriguing, right? Sure, but once the cult comes into the picture, Empty feels like a completely different movie, and the movie before the cult was introduced is much more enthralling. Post-cult Empty feels completely detached from pre-cult Empty. There is one more decent sequence once the cult comes into play where James ends up at a hidden camp in the woods where the cult takes its premier members to further indoctrinate them, but everything else regarding the cult is bland and unappealing. It comes off as Scientology, but the empty man instead of Xenu, and the members are even weirder. Everything with the cult is lackluster when compared to the things that are showcased before the cult is introduced. The cabin sequence is a bit eerie, but it pales in comparison to Bataan, The Bridge, and Scissor Suicide. Speaking of Scissor Suicide, it's weird that the audience is shown that seeing as it's not real, and James didn't see it himself. The whole James being a tulpa thing ruins the impact of a lot of the movie. The reveal that everything was made up is a bit of a letdown. The acting is strong, the effects work is mostly solid barring some very bad looking fake empty man CGI. The start of the movie is fantastic, but the jumbled ending doesn't stick the landing. 
That said, The Empty Man is still worth checking out. It has some really effective horror sequences. Oh, and pet warning, there's a dog corpse. It's depressing, but it isn't on the screen for too long. Number 3, Dead Dicks 2019, directed by Chris Bavoda and Lee Paula Springer. A suicidal guy named Richie kills himself in his apartment a few times. He keeps coming back to life. His sister Becca comes over and is able to witness Richie being reborn from a spot on his bedroom wall that looks like a vagina. Richie has been an obnoxious neighbor, so a guy from an apartment in the building named Matt pushes his way into Richie's apartment and sees a severed arm that wasn't thrown away with the rest of Richie's bodies that were cut up and bagged. Matt electrocutes himself and a new him is birthed from the wall. Turns out he's actually still alive, so the new him ends up being a monster version which kills the old him. Richie kills the monster version, but since he destroyed the monster version's brain, Matt doesn't come back. Becca realizes she died once after accidentally drinking Richie's suicide potion. Richie and Becca are physically unable to leave the apartment. Richie believes if he destroys his brain, Becca will be able to leave. He shoots himself and Becca crawls into the wall vagina. She exits it and sees a bunch of colorful lights. Richie and Mystery Liquids are the killer. Richie is technically the reason Matt was killed for good. Well, that summary kind of got away from me. Loops. So hot right now. Dead D's isn't really a loop movie, though, since dying and coming back doesn't reverse time or anything. The whole dying and coming back to life thing is a little similar to Blood Punch, where if you died, the day would loop and you'd forget everything. But if you survived the day, it would still loop, but you'd remember everything. In Dead Dicks, the resurrected person's memory is hazy and the death is forgotten until a body is seen. To give an easy place to start, how's the uh, acting? Heston Horwin played Richie. Horwin gives a solid performance. The big role of the movie was Becca, who was played by Jillian Harris. Jillian isn't perfect, but does deliver a very powerful single-shot monologue. Becca definitely required more range than Richie. Matt Keyes played Matt and is all over the place. It's like he's playing a guy who is randomly told to switch emotions mid-sentence over and over. His performance makes it seem like Matt is suffering from mood swings. He also looks like a knockoff John Bernthal. The comedy aspects of the film work. Given the themes of suicide and the toll taking care of a loved one suffering from mental illness can have, Dead Dicks could have easily ended up a bit too depressing. The humor early on helps ease into the thick drama at the end. A movie with this sort of premise is hard to end in a satisfying way. Having Becca climb into the wall vagina and see what's on the other side is an idea. It kind of works, but feels a bit cheap. She makes it through and then a couple different colored lights are shown on her. That's it. The ending needed a bit more production. Becca should have been fully bathed in fantastical light. It needs to be believable that she's witnessing something incredible on the other side of the wall. The score is doom metal based as a fan of the genre. I really dug the score, but it was a bit strange to have doom metal playing in a sports bar Becca worked at. A lot of the effects work is practical and neat. Whenever someone is birthed from the wall, they pop out in a membrane looking sack that looks great. Monster Matt does look a little 2000s video game cutscene, but was still creepy. Surprisingly, you don't see any dead dicks in the movie, only alive ones. 
Harwin goes full frontal. If you're in the mood to laugh and then feel a smidge of despair, consider checking out Dead Dicks. Number 4, Sputnik 2020, directed by Igor Abramenko. Two cosmonauts are returning to Earth, something weird happens during re-entry. One of the cosmonauts dies and the other, Constantine, survives and is taken to a top-secret compound. A doctor named Tatiana is brought in to examine Constantine. Every night, an alien creature crawls out of him and then returns before morning. Samiradov, the compound runner, has been feeding prisoners to the alien. Tatiana and Constantine work together to escape. They escape the compound after Constantine takes out a bunch of guards with the alien creature. They make it outside where Samiradov finds them. Constantine uses the creature to kill him and his men before taking his own life. Tatiana survives and adopts Constantine's child that he found about right before going to space. Samiradov, his men, and Constantine are the killers. Constantine reveals he and the monster are one, and he shows he can kind of control it, so he's a killer. If you look at the posters for Sputnik, you might think it's a movie about people in space dealing with a big ol' alien. The promotional material is misleading. Sputnik is a reimagining of when Spider-Man ended up with the alien symbiote. Instead of Peter Parker finding an alien that turns into a suit that enhances his abilities, an alien crawls down Constantine's throat and gives him the power to Ralph up a little bugger who's very into sucking the fear out of people's ripped off heads. Okay, maybe comparing it to Spider-Man is a bit of a reach. Still, Sputnik is about a symbiotic relationship between Constantine and Lil Scratchy. That's what I'm calling the alien. Constantine lets Lil Scratchy post up inside him. Lil Scratchy gives Constantine an enhanced ability to recover from physical harm. Lil Scratchy also rips Constantine's enemies to shreds. It's possible it's a little more parasitic than symbiotic, seeing as there aren't a ton of decent pros for Constantine, but he does become one with the intruder. Sputnik's runtime is about two hours. The pacing of the movie is spectacular. The twists and turns are peppered perfectly throughout, which keeps the entire movie engaging. The acting from the entire cast works. There are no weak links. All the characters feel real. The goal of Samiradov is to turn Lil Scratchy into a weapon. The movie takes place in the past when the whole arms race thing was happening, but the thought of Lil Scratchy being a weapon that'll be so feared other nations won't cause Russia any trouble is laughable. Samir Dov's goal probably should have been to learn the secrets of the enhanced regeneration the alien provided the host. Little Scratchy does kill a bunch of soldiers though, so hey, it's possible he'd be an amazing weapon for assassinations or something. Little Scratchy's design is unique and the CGI effects to bring him to life look incredible. It's hard to say if the movie's set design is intentionally great or if it's just what the architecture in Russia looks like. Turns out a large percentage of the film was shot at the Shemyakin Avchinikov Institute of Bioorganic Chemistry in Moscow. It was built in 1959 and is a good example of brutalist Soviet architecture. Thanks for clearing that up, IMDb trivia. Tatiana is chosen to aid with the creature study since she is willing to do anything to save a patient. She's about to be disbarred for drowning a patient to save their life. Drowned probably isn't the correct word because it implies death, but you get it. When she was brought in to see Constantine, I was really hoping she'd walk up to Samiradov and ask, Have you tried drowning him? 
Doctor, I have a cold. Tatiana dunks your head underwater. Doctor, my arm is broken. Tatiana dunks your head underwater. There isn't as much gore as you'd expect from a movie about an alien that rips people apart to eat their fear, but Constantine's torn apart partner at the landing site is well done and haunting. Most of the other intense score, like a prisoner's head being ripped off, is shown with a night vision effect that makes it a lot less gnarly. That's fine, though. Sputnik isn't an alien slasher. It's a captivating sci-fi story about a man, the alien inside him, and a doctor that'll do anything to help people. Give it a watch. Number 5, Color Out of Space 2019, directed by Richard Stanley. A strange meteorite brings a color no one has ever seen to Earth. Nicolas Cage and his family are affected by the strange color. A hydrologist and sheriff try to help the family, but everything is too messed up. Some of the family dies, some shed their mortal coil. The sheriff dies, the hydrologist survives. The effects of the meteorite are the killers. That summary is vague. Let's go through the family members and their experiences. Dad is Nicolas Cage. Mom is Teresa. Oldest son is Benny. Middle daughter is Lavinia. Youngest son is Jack. Nicolas Cage is driven insane by the influence of the color. Teresa ends up fusioned with Jack into a freakish abomination that turns into an even more abhorrent monster as time goes on. The fusion is put down by Nick Cage. Don't fuse with anyone unless you can perfectly perform the fusion dance or have the earrings that'll do the fusion for you. Benny is eaten by a well. The color is in the well. He was trying to get his dog out of the well. I believe the dog was alive at the bottom of it and had become one with the color, so no pet warning. Lavinia becomes one with the color. The sheriff isn't a family member, but he's killed by a tree that was brought to life. Now that we're all confusingly caught up on what happened to everyone, we can move on. Oh wait, Tommy Chong is also in a little shack and he's killed by the color? Uh, Color Out of Space has good bones. One of my favorite movies that you could label Lovecraftian is Annihilation, which turns out is a very similar movie to Color Out of Space. Now, Color Out of Space was originally a short story by Lovecraft. Annihilation is based on a book of the same name that, to my knowledge, does not directly credit Color Out of Space as an influence. The movie, Color Out of Space, which will be shorthanded to Koss, is basically bad annihilation. Instead of a slow, unnerving descent into madness with great acting, Koss is an all-over-the-place mess where Tommy Chong gives one of the best performances. Koss is intriguing and has a lot of neat ideas. It could easily be a flawed but decent movie if it wasn't for one glaring problem the casting of Nicolas Cage nope stop it stop I know what some of you might be thinking Nicolas Cage is great his performances make movies fun that isn't inherently wrong but sometimes the human meme hurts more than he helps he straight up murders Koss Cage plays the dad who's supposed to slowly go insane throughout the movie on a scale of 1 to 10 where 1 is 
completely normal and mundane and 10 completely wacko crazy, Nick Cage starts off the movie at an 8, then instantly ramps up to an 11 as soon as the meteorite lands. His performance doesn't work at all. The most bland dad of dads should have been cast in this role. Someone that could subtly act more and more insane. Someone like Eric Taylor, a really boring, put you to sleep kind of guy. If someone like that had been cast and had become more and more unhinged throughout the movie, it would have worked perfectly. These days, it seems like people will cast Nick Cage when they have no faith in their movie standing on its own two legs. Believe in your movies. Don't cast Nick Cage. Unless you know you're making garbage like Willy's Wonderland where Cage's presence only helps, someone could probably write a dissertation on how to properly inject Nicolas Cage into movies. When to do it, when not to do it. I'd read that. Cage isn't the only problem. Sure, he gives the worst performance by far. But Jolie Richardson's performance as Teresa isn't great either. The kids are okay. The older ones. Brendan Meyer is barely given anything to work with as Benny. Madeline Arthur has a lot of screen time as Lavinia and does a decent job. Everything about her practicing witchcraft should have been cut from the movie since it served no purpose. Jack was played by Julian Hilliard. He plays the same character he did in The Haunting of Hill House. He doesn't work all that well in the role. Where Color Out of Space really shines is its aesthetic and effects. The colorful nightmare land that comes to life after the meteorite lands is wonderfully otherworldly. The creature designs for the alpaca amalgam and mom and son fusion are incredible and disturbing. The mom and son especially, the fusion looks like a perfect pairing of The Thing and Junji Ito. The feeling of dread at seeing the body horror that is a mom and her young son forcibly combined hits hard. It's amazing horror. Besides the fusion, there is another haunting sequence in Tommy Chong's shack. The hydrologist and sheriff enter Chong's character's shack to find him sitting dead on his couch with his rantings and ravings that he recorded about the situation playing behind him. Up until this moment, it's easy to check out, but the scene pulls you right back in due to how unsettling it is. It's truly a bummer that Color Out of Space has powerful, haunting scenes, since they prove it could have been a solid horror movie if Nicolas Cage wasn't cast as the dead. Color Out of Space is a tonal mess due to a bad casting choice. Fortunately, it has enough captivating visuals and creepy ideas to warrant a light recommendation. Number 6, Run 2020, directed by Anish Chaganti. Sarah Paulson has a baby that doesn't survive, so she steals a new one that she names Chloe. Sarah drugs Chloe, which gives her all sorts of issues, including paralyzed legs. Chloe figures out that Sarah has been drugging her and isn't her real mom. Chloe almost escapes after she leaves the house and runs into the mailman who tries to help her, but Sarah kills the mailman and imprisons Chloe once again. Chloe drinks a highly toxic chemical that forces Sarah to take her to the hospital. 
At the hospital, Sarah tries to kidnap Chloe again, but is shot by security and falls backwards down a huge flight of stairs. Years later, Chloe can walk a little. She has been regularly visiting Sarah in prison. Chloe gives her the leg-numbing drug to keep her paralyzed. Sarah Paulson is the killer. To start off the logistics of Chloe keeping her evil fake mom paralyzed by sneaking pills into prison for years is stupid. The whole using dog pills to paralyze someone's legs for years is questionable at best. Sarah Paulson should have just been paralyzed by the stair tumble. Run is a movie that premiered on Hulu about a kid being trapped in their home by a crazy parent figure. It's very similar to the Hulu Into the Dark movie Flesh and Blood, but instead of a girl with agoraphobia and a crazy dad, Run has a wheelchair-bound girl with a crazy mom. Of the two, Run is definitely the better movie, but is it enjoyable? When I was younger, I read some of the series of unfortunate event books. I must have gotten four or five in when I thought to myself, why am I reading these? Things just keep getting worse. This suffering isn't fun to read. Run suffers from the same issue. Chloe can't catch a break until the very end of the movie. Every time she's about to escape, it's obvious that something's going to go wrong and send her back to square one. If only she would have finished writing that dang book. Maybe Sarah Paulson would have let her go. Oops, that's a different story. I've seen a decent amount of things with Sarah Paulson, shorthanded to SP from now on, in them, and have to admit, I'm not a fan. She always ends up playing the same type of character, a somewhat unhinged person. Her performance isn't spectacular, and right off the bat, it's obvious she's evil. There's never any real tension in Run since SP's intentions aren't at all hidden. All the tension in the movie stems from will SP come back into the house in time to see whatever Chloe's doing? This gets old fast since SP's character has no depth, only evil. Misery works because of Kathy Bates' portrayal of Annie Wilkes. She's interesting and nuanced as a character. SP is on the edge of injecting someone with a neurotoxin from start to finish. Her creating a homemade neurotoxin and attempting to inject Chloe with it was incredibly disturbing, though. Chloe was played by Kiera Allen. She's solid. There's a whole sequence where she crawls out a window onto a roof with a mouthful of water. It's strange, but... Her using a soldering gun and spit from water-filled chipmunk cheeks is definitely a creative way for her to break a window. Run is well-crafted and has some unique ideas. There are moments where it's really hard to suspend your disbelief like the entire hospital sequence. Allegedly, SP kills a patient to lure everyone away from Chloe. It's a bit of a mess. There's a scene with SP in the shower where it's shown she has strange scarring on her back. I don't remember the scarring being explained. I dug a little deeper, and it turns out there's a deleted scene that shows SP's mom abusing her as a child. Since that scene was cut, the shower scene should have been also. Run isn't some fresh, original idea, and isn't a better movie than Misery. Just watch Misery. Number 7, 2021 Fangoria Chainsaw Award Picks. After the Oscar nominations were released and I realized I hadn't seen or even cared to see a majority of the movies, 
I decided I needed to get my movie award show fix somewhere else. I had already seen a good amount of the Fangoria Chainsaw Award nominees and thought, what the heck? I'll put my head down and watch all the ones I haven't seen in a short amount of time. Unfortunately, by the time I finished all the movies, voting had been closed, so instead of officially casting my ballot, here are my picks. To make it clear, these are the movies and people I want to win. They aren't the people and movies I think will win. Given that the awards had an open ballot system, I expect most of the winners to be based on popularity more than anything else. Here are my picks. Best Wide Release Underwater Best Limited Release The Wolf of Snow Hollow Best First Feature Come to Daddy Best Streaming Premiere Anything for Jackson Best International Movie Baccarat Best Lead Performance Marin Ireland in The Dark and the Wicked Best Supporting Performance Alice Krieg in Gretel and Hansel Best Director Leigh Whannell for The Invisible Man Best Screenplay Baccarat Best Score Rob for Gretel and Hansel Best Makeup Effects Dan Martin for Possessor Best Creature Effects Dan Martin for Color Out of Space That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 95 Nightmare Rock, Unexplainable Death, and Space Danger. As always, thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. The next episode will be out on May 2nd. It'll be full of other Fangoria Chainsaw Award nominees. Until then, stay away from Sarah Paulson. She's dangerous. <laughs>